Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Questions for Corbett. This week's question comes in via email from Joe, who writes, Trial balloons for bank bail-ins were already floated in Cyprus and Greece during the 2008 GFC, the Global Financial Crisis. Will they be tried on a mass scale during the GCC, the Global COVID Crash? Interesting. Thank you for the question, Joe. That does open a entire Pandora's box of questions and research into a much-neglected but very important study, namely the international banking regulatory framework that has been instituted uh, by the central banksters in coordination over the past decade as a result of the 2008 financial crisis that no one could have seen coming. How did it happen? Don't worry, the central banksters have the solution to that particular problem. Well, a lot to unpack there, but first let's start by defining our terms, because you mentioned the remarkable bank bail-in event in Cyprus that took place several years ago. I did document it at the time, and so I will refer people back to some of the reports that I did on that. For example, an April 2013 report that I did for GRTV called Bail-In, The Birth of the New Financial Order. The crisis in the Cyprus banking sector has been building for years, as the small island nation's banks began to account for a greater and greater share of its economy. The trigger events causing the recent crisis, however, was, appropriately enough, the result of a meltdown elsewhere in the Eurozone, in Greece. When a bankrupt Greece was allowed to let some of its private bondholders take a loss, a so-called haircut, Cypriot banks lost money and needed refinancing. Then the country's big institutions, like the Bank of Cyprus, asked the government for a bailout. In turn, the government went to the EU in June 2012 and asked for its own bailout. After months of negotiations, the government of Cyprus announced it was on the verge of a 10 billion euro bailout deal with the so-called Troika of the EU, the ECB, and the IMF. But when details of the plan emerged, including the fact that it had the confiscation of both insured and uninsured bank deposits baked into the cake, protests erupted around the country. The final deal ended up keeping deposits under 100,000 euros untouched, but uninsured deposits were restructured, wiping out the savings and cash flow of foreign depositors and local businesses alike. For many, the question is whether this will be a template for future banking crises in the European Union and elsewhere. So... Yes, that was the question as it stood in 2013. Will this bail-in idea be a template for future banking crises in the European Union and elsewhere? Well, seven years on, I think it's fairly safe to say that that question has been answered. And spoiler, the answer is yes, that will be the template. And we can say that quite specifically. But just to make sure everyone is on the same page, yes, we know what bank bailouts are i.e. what we saw in the wake of the 2008 crisis with these systemically important, too-big-to-fail banks. We can't let them go under, so we'll have to take taxpayer money and give hundreds of billions of dollars to these various financial institutions, uh, adding up to crazy astronomical numbers. Uh, taxpayers on the hook for those, those funds because we can't let the banks go under. There was a little bit of kickback and resistance. It just gave rise to things like the Tea Party movement, like the Occupy movement, there was a widespread uh, a distaste for that type of maneuver. So the governments of the world thought, well, how can we contain this? How can we, how can we best handle these types of crises when they inevitably rise again? Because they will always arise again. And we can't let the banks fail. So, all right, we won't do bailouts. We'll do bail-ins, i.e. we'll take 
a bunch of the capital that is available to these banks and will let them use that to pay off their debts, including, oh yeah, deposits. That's right. So more information about this can be gathered from investopedia.com, which has an article up on why bank bail-ins will be the new bailouts, which notes, The financial crisis of 2008 ushered in the term too big to fail, which regulators and politicians use to describe the rationale for rescuing some of the country's largest financial institutions with taxpayer-funded bailouts. Heeding the public's displeasure over the use of their tax dollars in such a way, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Act of January 2010, which eliminated the option of bank bailouts, but opened the door for bank bail-ins. With a bank bail-in, the bank uses the money of its unsecured creditors, including depositors and bondholders, to restructure their capital so it can stay afloat. In effect, the bank is allowed to convert its debt into equity for the purpose of increasing its capital requirements. A bank can undergo a bail-in quickly through a resolution pr proceeding, which provides immediate relief to the bank. The obvious risk to bank depositors is the possibility of losing a portion of their deposits. However, depositors have the protection of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, insuring each bank account for up to $250,000. Banks are required to use only those deposits in excess of the $250,000 protection. The provision for bank bail-ins in the Dodd-Frank Act was largely mirrored after the cross-border framework and requirements set forth in Basel III International Reforms II for the banking system of the European Union. All right, uh, please go read through that full article for more of the context, but I think you get the idea. Uh, this tells us some interesting things, actually, about the nature of the banking system and how banking operates, one of which may be a surprise to some people out there. But yes, no, you're, when you take money and you put it into the bank, that isn't your money in the bank anymore. You are loaning that money to the bank, and it is theirs to play with as they see fit. And to engage in crazy derivative schemes and whatever else that can completely melt and dissolve trillions of dollars of notional wealth in a moment, and which will ultimately cause the loss of your deposit, which, again, is not your money. It is the bank's... You are lending it to the bank. So you are just a creditor to the bank, and they can come in and reach into your bank account. But don't worry, the FDIC has totally got you covered. Um, well, first of all, in the Cyprus example, yes, uh, there was 100000 euro uh, uh, insurance on bank accounts in the eurozone, including in Cyprus. So don't worry, you're, you're totally fine unless, you know, you're a business uh, owner or someone trying to actually, you know, make payroll and do things that have a cash flow, in which case you probably did have more than 100,000 euro in your bank account, in which case 50% of that was just gone because the bank said so, because oh, the bank's in trouble, so your deposits are gone. <laughs> Sorry, small business owner, you can't uh, you can't pay payroll, you can't you can't have a business anymore. Um, that's how that works. So that's a pretty important thing. The other thing that of interest to note from this is, as the Investopedia article notes, well, the Dodd Frank Act provisions that allow for bail-ins actually came from a Basel III International Reforms II uh, system implemented by the. Uh, Bank for International Settlements for the European Union. What? What on earth is going on? Yes. Yes, there is an international framework for regulating bank capital. It's called Basel III, International Regulatory Framework for Banks. And it is brought to you by the fine folks at the Bank for International Settlements, which I hope will not be a new idea to my listeners, a new institution. It, uh, I think, infamously in in independent media circles, uh, is, is the bank... That uh, was referred to by Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope as 
the apex of an international system of financial control, specifically quoting from page 324 of this very hefty tome. Uh, in addition to these pragmatic goals, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences, the apex of the system was to be the bank for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Again, some pretty important and interesting information being revealed in this book, which is precisely why the uh, the uh, prints, uh, the the uh, printing press plates for this were destroyed and. Uh, it, Quigley was lied to by his own publisher about reissuing or uh, issuing a, a, another edition of this book. Again, I've talked about that a lot in the past, but yes, yes, the Bank for International Settlement should be ringing in your ear. As I've always said, I really do want to do an in-depth exploration of the BIS at some point, although obviously uh, the agenda that agenda has been derailed by current events. But anyway, at some point we will go into much more detail about the BIS, but suffice it to say, it is this shadowy organization controlled by the central bankers who, oh, by the way, central banks are all private corporations as well. And yes, they are running an international system of financial control meant to dominate the political system of each country. Direct quote from this Georgetown professor who was the uh, one of the inspirations for Bill Clinton, William Jefferson Clinton. That is interesting and remarkable that there is this international system of control for banking regulation. Now, the BIS also hosts a little-known organization called the Bank, the Financial Stability Board, which issued a report in 2014 called Adequacy of Loss-Absorbing Capacity of Globally, Global Systemically Important Banks in Resolution. And that report was immediately rubber-stamped and adopted by the G20 as a guideline for instituting bank bail-in provisions in various countries. And this was noted by researcher and author Ellen Brown in an article that she wrote about this in December 2014, New G20 Rules, Cyprus-style bail-ins to hit depositors and pensioners. Quote, On the weekend of November 16th, the G20 leaders whisked into Brisbane, posed for their photo ops, approved some proposals, made a show of roundly disapproving of Russian President Vladimir Putin, and whisked out again. It was all so fast, they may not have known what, what they were endorsing when they rubber-stamped the Financial Stability Board's adequacy of loss-absorbing capacity of global systemically important banks in resolution, which completely changes the rules of banking. Russell Napier, writing in Zero Hedge, called it the day money died. In any case, it may have been the day deposits died as money. Unlike coins and paper bills, which cannot be written down or given a haircut, says Napier, deposits are now just part of commercial banks' capital structure. That means they can be bailed in or confiscated to save the megabanks from derivative bets gone wrong. Rather than reining in the massive and risky derivatives casino, the new rules prioritize the payment of banks' derivative obligations to each other ahead of everyone else. That includes not only depositors, public and private, but the pension funds that are the target market for the latest bail-in play called bail-inable blondes. Bail-in has been sold as avoiding future government bailouts and eliminating too big to fail but it actually institutionalizes 
TBTF, since the big banks are kept in business by expropriating the funds of their creditors. Well, that is a fascinating story, and it does give us some window of insight into these types of shadowy players like the Financial Stability Board. So in December of 2014, I did have the chance to interview Ellen Brown about that article and specifically about the role that the FSB plays in this international banking regulatory infrastructure. Let's talk about the process by which this is being uh, implemented in the various G20 countries, because to me, this is the real face of the globalization and the global government threat that we're facing. It's not this idea of some parliament of the world that's meeting or something like this. It's these bodies that most people don't even know exist that are writing these types of white papers on regulatory reforms that are then rubber stamped by the G20 and implemented in each country individually. But it's basically like this Financial Stability Board is writing the global banking regulations for all of the G20 countries, more or less. Let's talk about the FSB, where it came from, and how it is uh, locked into this agenda, and who's really running it anyway. Well, originally it was the FSF, which was the Financial Stability Forum. That was in 1999, and it was formed after the last crisis, or the crisis before last, the the Asian crisis. Um, in order to stabilize the banking system. So then it was just seven countries, the seven largest industrialized countries, and it was merely advisory. But after the 2008 collapse, um, the, they enlarged it to be the G20. There, there was a meeting of the G20 in London, and they all agreed to be bound by the rules of this Financial Stability Board which is housed in the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. It's not, it isn't exactly the BIS, but there's certainly some obvious connections there. And the BIS is itself a very shady entity that uh, started out in 1930 to do um, settlement of the reparations payments from Germany. But as it turned out, the, the German the German central bank uh, pretty much called the shots on the, on the BIS. And anyway, it was very controversial. They were dealing with confiscated gold, et cetera. There was an attempt to get it shut down, but somehow it kind of went underground and then it reappeared and became the, uh, well, it really reappeared when they built this building that was this very unusual looking building that, that looks like a, Uh, Well, anyway, it looks like it comes out of a science fiction movie and it's shaped like a boot. And there's it's rumored that the boot came from this line out of 1984 where um, where um, Winston is told something I can't remember something about um, the shape of the future would be uh, if you want to see the shape of the future, visualize a boot on the necks of the people. And so there we are. Once again, Ellen Brown of ellenbrown.com. I hope you'll check the show notes for the link to that full interview, as well as her article, which goes into more detail about those events there in December of 2014. But I hope at the very least that what I've put out on the table so far today gives you the sense that, yes, there has been over the past decade a a concerted and largely covert or backdoor effort to put in an international banking regulatory framework that allows for these bail-ins to take place. And I wish I could give you a single document or a single reference, but I found so many different documents, different white papers, 
different parts of that massive Basel III regulatory framework, etc., that have been uh, written about and, uh, and, and reflected on and articles written about over the years, so that there are many, many, many different cookie crumbs that we could put out on this trail. I'll just leave one, one example that comes from the BIS itself, a speech that was delivered at a BIS-hosted conference entitled, Bail-in in the New Bank Resolution Framework, Is There an Issue with the Middle Class?, uh, from 2018. Um, but again, as I say, there are many different white papers and, and different proposals and things that have come out over the years from the Bank of International Settlements, from the Financial Stability Board, from the G20, and then at the national level, for example, Canada and others having put bail-in regimes into their uh, proposed legislation over the years. So there's many different things that we would have to examine there. But just generally speaking, Yes, bail-ins are a possibility. So back to Joe's original question, are we going to see bail-ins in the GCC, the global COVID crash? Well, it is, as I say, it is a possibility. And we get this, for example, most recently, just in the past couple of days from an article that was posted up to goldseek.com by Jan Neuenhaus at Voima Gold called Why Gold and Why Now? In which he notes, quote, the threat of bank bail-ins. Last but not least, a serious threat for people's fiat savings held at commercial banks are bail-ins. In, two in 2014, the European Union adopted the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive. The implemented rules dictate that when a bank becomes insolvent, the bank's shareholders and creditors pay the costs through a bail-in mechanism. Money held at banks is technically a loan to the bank. This makes depositors unsecured creditors of the bank. Under the current rules, when the bank becomes insolvent, deposits will be seized to save the bank. Outside the EU, bail-in rules have been implemented as well. The reason why people are still holding large sums of fiat money at banks is because many aren't aware of the risks. End quote. So, yes, bail-ins are a possibility. The framework is there. Everything's in place. It has already been trial ballooned in Cyprus, so... In the event of some sort of cataclysmic financial event, you better believe that the banks are coming for your deposits. But having said that, I don't see this current GCC, the global COVID crash, playing out in the same way as the 2008 GFC, the global financial crisis. This, that, uh, this problem that is happening right now is not primarily a financial event like the 2008 crisis was that had to do with those collateralized debt obligations and all that toxic garbage that was being rubber stamped AAA certified by the ratings agencies and all of that shenanigans that was going on uh, that was a lot to do with derivatives and, and fancy financial instruments. No, what is happening right now is the cessation of productive economic activity and manufacturing and distribution and actual physical, I mean, retail, all, all of this has been massively disrupted by essentially, a, if not a worldwide, at least a mostly worldwide cessation of all activity. It's uh, truly unprecedented, really. <coughs> and, uh, and so it is not primarily a financial event. So if bail-ins do come, they certainly won't be a first order effect of what we're living through right now. It would be the second or third order effect. Of course, the crisis, the financial crisis, or the economic crisis that's developing right now will have financial effects as people become unable to pay their mortgages, unable to make good on their various loans and debt obligations. But that will, ha and that will have financial effects. But those will be second, third order effects of this crisis, second wave, third wave. The real first wave, of course, is the immediate unemployment, as we've seen, of tens of millions of people in the United States, tens of millions more around the world, uh, that has 
obviously had a dramatic effect on the basic ability of people to meet their needs that has, of course, been papered over by the unemployment checks that are coming in. But as soon as that starts to dry up, and assuming there are no more digital dollar schemes UBI created in order to paper over that, then that will obviously be the primary primary financial threat to the economic and financial well-being of the average Joe Sixpack and James Soccer Mom, more so than uninsured deposits in the bank. I'm assuming <coughs> most people, most of the average Joes and Janes out there, do not have hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros in their bank account that would be subject to these types of bail-in procedures. That probably is not what most people are thinking of as their, their first and primary uh, threat to their financial existence. Having said that, as as I think uh, Neuenhaus uh, rightly points out in that article that we just read that passage from, uh, the reason why many people are still holding large sums of fiat money in the banks is because they aren't aware of these risks at all. They don't even understand that they are loaning their money to the bank. That's what a deposit actually is, and they don't understand how that works or the bail-in provisions or any of that. And it is, as always, that lack of understanding that will serve in the favor of uh, the banksters and those who are manipulating the system and against the average person who just doesn't even bother to look into the system that they are literally investing in, whether they know it or not. Uh, now, there are solutions to this, and I will once again invite people to look through the solutions tag on my site for many, many examples of how I've talked about, for example, how to beat the banksters at their own game, and I've talked about alternative currencies, and I've talked about credit unions and moving your money and all of these other ways of trying to get our money out of this controlled, rigged system where you are lending, literally lending your money, your hard-earned money, to the banks for them to play with and then bail themselves out with your money when uh, when they get into trouble. It's a horrible system, and we should be taking our money, our time, our energy, our investment out of it in every way possible while we still can. Uh, but I'll leave that for you to explore on your own. I will, of course, put the relevant links in the show notes along with everything that I've cited today. And hopefully there are enough cookie crumbs here for the real researchers in the crowd to sink their teeth into. This is a juicy topic. And thank you very much for bringing up, Joe. I don't think many people have been looking at this uh, closely enough for the past decade. <coughs> Having said that, we're going to leave it there for today. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.